righty. Welcome back to another episode of the podcast. Uh, as per usual, I have chosen the nicest day of the week to go into the darkest room on campus to record because I'm just that nice. Um, I am very excited to be joined today by somebody with a wonderful and extensive career in museum education, uh, Randy Williams. Randy, thank you for being on the program. My pleasure. Happy to be here. Yeah. I'm very much looking forward to your talk tonight. Uh, if you're listening, unfortunately, you have missed it. Uh, <laughs> your loss. Um, but um, to, to start off with, uh, I thought I would just um, ask what got you interested in the arts and arts education. What kind of drew you towards this field? I did my time at college at NYU. Um, I was a pre-med major, uh, thinking I would become a doctor. And I needed a job, and there are two jobs available. And one was in the art department, and the other job was at the library. Mm -hmm. I took both jobs, um, enjoyed both things, but the people that I worked with in the art education and art department were really special people. Mm. And they showed an interest in me, which I thought was somewhat strange at the time, um, but they were willing to make sure that I ate properly, that I was housed, <laughs> that I was doing my work. Yeah. They became an extended family, and I couldn't mm. quite understand how these people who I had just recently met became so familiar with me and um, decided that I would take a couple of courses and fell in love with art through the art department, mm. the people. And after taking a couple of classes, um, I decided that this was really my passion, making art. And so I decided to change my major. And it was somewhat um, a little shocking for my family. I was going to ask uh, that, yeah. yeah. Yeah, well, they were all surprised that um, I had changed my major to something that could be so dubious as um, becoming an artist. Yeah. And then I realized at some point that I would need to sustain myself and make a living. So I decided I would take a couple of art education classes. Mm. And um, my major then became uh, studio art and art education. And um, I finished my degree, I student taught, and went on to get my graduate degree in art education. And at that point, I was ready to step into the world as, um, as a teacher uh, in the public schools, but that never happened. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I mean, uh, I know that the, the path eventually sort of took you to working for, for many years at the, the Metropolitan Museum of Art, um, which is a very prestigious institution. I'm sure everyone listening has, has probably heard of that. But how did that come come to be? How did you get that? That came about because um, when I was student teaching, there's a gentleman who was in charge of high school programs, Phil Yenowin. Mm -hmm. uh, he was at the school at the time that I was student teaching. He dropped into my room, and um, I didn't notice him. Uh, I was just so... Uh, invested in teaching my lesson plan that, um, you know, I was just focused on students, the lesson plan. And at the end, I saw this gentleman walking towards me, and he said, that was really good. And I said, you know, thank you. He said, how would you like to come and teach for me? I said, teach for you? He said, yeah. He said, how would you like to come to teach at the Metropolitan Museum of Art? And at the time, I was on my way to grad school, so I said, well, I can't because I'm on my way to grad school, and I'll be away for two years. 
He said, well, I'll tell you what. You come and see me in two years, and you have a job. And sure enough, two and a half years later, I ran into a friend who said that Phil was looking for me. Um, I went to the Met, um, and he hired me. And I've been there now for 50 years. Yeah, that is... (laughs) that's a pretty remarkable job offer to be able to, you know, go and work or uh, go study for two years and still have it waiting for you on the other end. I mean, that's that's pretty remarkable. I was shocked. I mean, because I didn't know anything about museums. (laughs) I mean, literally. And I didn't know anything about museum education. Um, So when I arrived at the Met, I had to learn everything literally from the ground up. Mm. I had to learn the collection. I had to learn how to integrate... um, lessons into not a classroom but into a gallery yeah and it took me a while but um after about i would say two years i became incredibly um, interested in different works of art and different techniques of teaching my audiences were really varied Mm. and i Mm -hmm. sought it really to embrace it and love it yeah and i mean like obviously you you stayed on there for, for many, many years and gained mm-hmm. quite a lot of experience there. Um, I, I'm curious if there were um, uh, certain ways that you had of of drawing visitors into getting deeper into the art, certain techniques and things that arose in that experience that you that you might want to share. Well, I, I, I think that's what I became somewhat um, proficient at. Um, and, and I think I was good at it uh, because... I myself was beginning to understand how to look at art. Mm, and mm-hmm. so I was right there with my audiences. Right. I had not had the experience of teaching in a museum or I didn't have an art history degree. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was struggling to understand what's the best way to look at and understand this work of art. So what was happening with me at the time was this a wonderment for looking at a work of art that I could share with my students. And I started thinking about literature as a way mm. of looking at art. Um, I love poets, and I would introduce uh, a series of poems for people to look at mm. uh, to help interpret art. I would help them understand the distinction between lyrics and music right. so that you could look at an abstract art as, uh, as music. And it does not necessarily have to have content in terms of telling a story. But it could just Mm. be music, um, dance and movement. I worked with the dancer. And so I started looking at ways in which you could think about the idea of the body Mm. and using the body to help explore and explain works of art. Um, So things like that really helped me to better understand work. And it helped me to become a better educator to help people expand their way of viewing and looking at art. Yeah, I love the idea of using those metaphors to other forms of art as a way of, of getting into the visual arts because I think a lot of people come in and they're, they're sort of feel intimidated. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, you know, it's you're in this big museum and do I really know what to say about art? Or, you know, am I going to make a fool of myself if I try and interpret this? Like it's above them in some way. Mm-hmm. Um, and really anybody can can Mm -hmm. appreciate and understand art. Mm -hmm. Um, And and I was kind of curious as well, uh, that kind of leads me into, um, what do you think are some of the biggest barriers to people engaging with art when they come into the museum that you have to get past when you're you're educating in that way? I think the first barrier is um, they feel they don't belong. Yeah. And the institutions quite often don't help them 
feeling comfortable mm. or engaged. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have guards in the museum, and most of them really don't um, talk to audiences in a way that is comforting. Yeah, It's always confrontational. And you can tell people not to touch works of art in, you know, in a really sympathetic way to help <laughs> them understand the value of not touching or getting too close to a work of art. It doesn't have to be punitive. And mm. so much of that is punitive. Um, then you have um, this idea that the museum is for the, the elite um, and people right. of privilege. And um, that's not necessarily true either. So you want to help people to understand that looking at art is very similar to a form of literacy. Mm. In the same way, way that you learn to read and write, you can learn to look at art and develop your visual, literal, your visual literacy skills. And in fact, you are probably more equipped to look at art than you are to look at or to read, to read a book because the world is a visual world. And you want people mm-hmm. to understand that they have that power of vision to look at, interpret, and understand works of art. Then you have this idea that the work of art only has one specific interpretation. Mm, right. And, um, and that often is the result of a single label. And I remind my visitors all the time that the artist did not write the label. The <laughs> artist made the artwork. And you have a choice. You can ignore the label for the moment. You could look at the work and see what you can gain from viewing the work, and then measure what your experiences are against that of the label. Yeah, that's yeah, that's such a great idea. I, I've I've kind of drawn more and more into trying to have um, when people come into the into the you know our museum, trying to get more and more into don't read up on this work first. Mm-hmm. Like, what do you see mm-hmm. as like that sort of basic, which seems like a, you know, a simple idea, but just, you know, from mm-hmm. yourself, from what your own observations are, what, what's in front of you, not trying to, um, conform yourself into what someone else might've said about something. Yeah. I mean, you, you, I mean, I think if you help, uh, your audiences to understand that art is not about art, <laughs> art is about experiences that the artists had, <clears throat> and they use a system for explaining that in a visual way. Yeah. And those experiences are the same experiences that we have. Yeah. You know, they just use that skill or that ability in a different way of exploring it. Yeah. And that, I mean, that ties in really nicely to uh, the fact that you yourself are an artist. Mm-hmm. You produce work on your own. And I was kind of curious about how your artistic philosophy and, and practice influences your teaching or, or how do those two things work together, being both the educator and the artist at the same time? The times that you want to keep them separate because you don't want mm-hmm. that to influence um, the teaching that you do. Right. Um, it's hard to do that now with my students because they look everything up on the Internet. So, <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> you know, they come in and they say, Professor, I've seen your work on the Internet. Um, but most of the teaching that I do has very little to do with the work that I make. Hmm. 
Hmm. I think there's some indirect um, connections, okay. but there yeah. are no direct connections. Um, so what I try and do is create a series of assignments that will allow my students to create a way of connecting to their experiences mm. and mm-hmm. then have them uh, use that information in building their own body of work. And one yeah. simple example that I'll give you, which I've been working with for a while now, and I really love doing this with my students, we have an assignment that's based on three things. Mm. The first is, who am I? And they have to drop a list of who they are. Hmm. And we talk about family, we talk about institutions, we talk about school, we talk about if there's um, a real religion involved. Right. And so they have that list. Then they have to have a list of who I am not, mm. right? Okay. And so yeah. that list becomes really interesting. And <laughs> so that on that list, it may be um, I'm not a bigot. Um, <laughs> I'm not an athlete. Um, right. I'm not really, really small, and I'm kind of I'm okay, but I'm, I'm not a genius. <laughs> um, yeah. So they, they have that list, and that's a harder list to come up with. I'm sure, yeah. And then the third list, um, is who I aspire to be. Right. What are my inspirations? And so what they then do is have those three lists, and they have to create three body, bodies of work based on those three lists. Hmm. And it's interesting because, you know, who I am, and we talked about, well, you know, a lot right. of who you are is based on the family. Yeah, naturally. You know, the foods yeah. that I like. That's what you've been <laughs> eating all your life. Yeah. Um, the places I like to go. And then uh, who I am not is an easier list because, like, um, I know that I'm not certain things, and and you can make that list. But Mm. then you get to who do I aspire to be. Right. And um, that becomes a challenging list because um, they may say, well, I aspire to have a job, make a lot of money, have a nice car. (laughs) And then you'd say, well, you know, all of those things are good, but um, what are the human qualities that you have? Yeah. Do you aspire to be? a better person, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you you aspire to be more understanding. (laughs) And so you could have those conversations with them about the works that they are working on, the works that they're making. Gotcha. Yeah, I feel like it's it's probably a bit like being asked in an interview if, uh, like, where do you see yourself in in Mm -hmm. 10 years? Yeah. Um, I find that question so challenging. It takes so much time to piece apart what that is. Well, it is challenging, but what's interesting about it in this regard is that they have those two other bodies of work to think about. Mm -hmm. Because when you think, um, where do I see myself 10 years from now? How will having all of these things that have affected me and brought me to this point help me get to Mm. those aspirations? Right. Um, So tying the three sort of lists together. Right, tying the three together. Because they're not separate from one another. Right. But that, that list, that aspiration list, is so interesting because... As you said, how do I see myself three years from now, or 10 years from now, or 15 years from now? For most students, it really is tied into economics. Yeah, yeah. And you don't want it to be because you're going to survive. Mm. You're going to have a job. <laughs> but will you be a better person? Yeah. Right. <laughs> will you be more understanding? Yeah. You know, those are the things that you want them to begin to include in that third component. Wow. That is such an interesting way of thinking about that in terms of breaking down Mm-hmm. what you make. Yeah. Um, I'm kind of curious, you know, um, if you have a, a particular uh, favorite 
work of art that you think has has influenced you in in some way or or has a particular meaning to you? I do. Um, I have um, what I think of as my aesthetic and spiritual father, Mm. and that's Rembrandt. Mm. And I've been looking at Rembrandt for over 50 years, really Mm -hmm. very, um, very closely. And one of the things that I noticed about 30 years ago is that as I was looking at Rembrandt, his portrait changed. And I was ready to go ask one of the guards if someone had been working on the portrait or um, is that paint that's put on it. It just looked different. And then I Mm. realized that the portrait didn't change. I changed. Mm. And so I saw it differently. And I use that as a model for students to come back and look at the same work of art over a period of time. Mm. Because as you change, that work will look a little bit different. So the Rembrandt is my portrait, and it's my favorite piece, and I look at it, and what I love about this portrait so much is that the artist is not not disguising what he is using as his medium. Mm. You know it's paint. You know that red on the nose is red paint. (laughs) The white that's on the lining of the shirt, you know it's white paint. You know that the brown paint that's on his smock and that's on the background is the same brown paint. Mm-hmm. And in, in spite of the fact that you know it's paint, you still see the magic in it. Right. You it's, still see this piece as a living, breathing entity. So even though it's wearing its own sort of medium on its sleeve, it e- still transforms exactly. into something else. Even though, you know, even though it's not smoothed out, it's not mm-hmm. blended, you know you know that it's paint, and you know the story that it's telling is of this gentleman who had this hard, difficult life, wow. who lost his son, who lost his wife, right. who lost most of his possessions, mm-hmm. who lost most of his patrons, who did portraits of himself. Um, and if he had a difficult time, he still had to look in the mirror and paint a portrait of the person who had a difficult time. Yeah. And um, for me, that is incredibly challenging and insightful when I begin to think about an artist who pursued the number of self-portraits that Rembrandt painted of himself. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. It's nice to hear that uh, such a a detailed answer on that. I I feel like a lot of the time asking an artist um, to give their, their favorite work of art is sort of like asking somebody to pick their favorite kid. Uh, it could be sort of uh, tearing you apart, but uh, that's a really great and complex answer to that. Yeah, no, I I, um, I used to carry a portrait of Rembrandt around with me. I still have it. It's actually, mm. it's in the hotel. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. With me in my wallet. <laughs> and people would ask um, to see my family, and I would show them um, my wife, my kids, and I would show them Rembrandt. That's amazing. <laughs> like, yeah. It's like, well, why do you have that? Well, that's my aesthetic father. That's my... Yeah. If it's meaningful the, to you, then yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. the guy I go to when I need to... Uh, when I when I want um, a series of meditation, when I need to be alone, when I have thoughts that are really important. Yeah. Wow. Well, as we're, as we're kind of starting to trend towards um, wrapping up here, I realize this is sort of a... <laughs> maybe sort of a difficult question, but... Um, is there anything you would want to share with, with someone listening who might be 
interested in pursuing education in the arts or, or maybe they're thinking about whether they want to pursue their own studio or turn towards education like what what is something that you know maybe one thing that you might want to share with them uh, as we're as we're closing up here well the you know I'll, I'll separate those those questions out because yeah. they're, they're, for me they're really two um, I think about teaching often and a lot mm. and I often ask people, um, have they not been taught by a teacher? And very few people uh, could say no. Mm-hmm. Um, so from the time that you're in kindergarten to 12th grade, you've been in school for 13 years. <laughs> and you've been taught by a number of very influential people. Yeah. And um, you begin to realize the value of these people that you've been taught by. And so for a teacher thinking about that, you know, they, they, they want to be in a position where they can offer their students the very best of their own experiences. Mm. And I tell that group of students that I'm working with, you can think about a single assignment that will help you determine whether or not you'll be a good teacher. Mm. Think about the best teacher you ever had and think about the worst. Yeah. And I do that in the beginning of all of my classes, and I say to my students, you know, and they tell me about the best teachers, and they have remarkable stories about what teachers have done for them. Sure. How they've singled them out, how they could see something in them that no one else has seen in them. Right, How they've right. helped other people, and they see them helping other people. And then, and tell me about some of the worst teachers you ever had. And they tell me about teachers that were really horrible. Mm-hmm. And I say to them, <clears throat> the lesson to learn is be that good teacher. Yeah, you know it, it's really simple, and um, and teachers are needed, and teachers should be valued. Yeah, and um, and I believe in um, a system that produces really um, capable, um, empathetic, intelligent people to teach from K to twelfth grade, and then for people that decide that they want to be artists. Yeah, I think it's fairly simple, and that is hard work, discipline. And never give up on yourself. Yeah. You know, and you, you have to uh, be incredibly kind to yourself in terms of accepting mm. rejections. Um, right. Well, I'm sure. Yeah. Right. <laughs> not everything is going to come easily. And you are doing it for you. You're not doing it for anyone else. Mm. So if you never have a show, if you are never seen... Um, it's, it still does not mean that you are not a significant artist hmm. um, because you are matching and meeting all the criteria that you have set down for yourself as a creative person. Right, measuring against yourself, like, not exactly. against everyone else. <clears throat> and, yeah. and, and against how much you have developed from, um, <clears throat> from the beginning to the middle to the end to the new beginning to the middle to, yeah. you know, so. <clears throat> and, and patience. <clears throat> and be incredibly, hmm. incredibly patient. Um, and dogmatic and, um, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think that that's a, that's a great note to end on. Uh, I really appreciate you, you doing this and, um, looking forward to your talk tonight. Oh, it's been my pleasure. All right. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you. Thank you.